This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. This is another episode in our AI is Here series. We've covered all sorts of industries in this recent series, from financial services to oil and gas and beyond, but we've yet to touch on defense. Obviously, defense is not only a gigantic industry, it's also a rather important area where AI is increasingly being applied. And I figured, well, if we're diving in on defense, why not speak to Jared Dunman himself? Jared is a PhD from Stanford in artificial intelligence, where he also did his postdoc. And he is now the technical director of AI and machine learning for the Defense Innovation Unit. The Defense Innovation Unit gets to work on the cool cutting-edge projects for the Department of Defense here in the United States, uh, a rather important wing of their work. And they do a lot of interfacing with startups in addition to helping to build out and flesh out AI applications uh, within the public sector. AI applications for homeland security and defense. In this episode, there's two big themes that we touch on that are both worth tuning in for. The first of which is looking at some individual use cases and capabilities that are becoming more important in defense now, things that are in the field being used. Namely, Jared talks to us about what we refer to here at Emerge from time to time as external search. How do we combine uh, and find patterns in data out in the world, whether it's satellite imagery, social media, news headlines, etc., that might help us proxy for something that we want to stay attuned to. Uh, whether it's something that could be a danger, something that could be an opportunity, um, we go into that particular use case. And Jared shares some of his thoughts around, again, AI applications in the defense space. But we also dive in on uh, the adoption of artificial intelligence. Adopting AI is hard in a big, stodgy enterprise. Now imagine what that's like in the Department of Defense. I mean, there's nothing bigger than the Department of Defense here in the United States in terms of an organization. And when it comes to AI adoption, it's they've got all the same challenges. They've got data silos. They've got executives that don't quite understand AI. Jared goes into uh, some of his most important points around what is it that allows AI to be deployed? What do we need to do with leaders? What do we need to do to collaborate across teams? What do we need to do with our data infrastructure? What are the must-knows in the enterprise? to get AI off the ground. And of course, in this AI is Here series, we're talking a lot about applications that are off the ground. So Jared's not speaking about hypotheticals. He's saying, here's what we actually move forward in order to deploy these technologies in obviously a very mission critical environment. This AI is Here episode is brought to you by Samba Nova, as have been the previous AI is Here episodes. I'll talk a little bit more about Samba Nova in the outro to this episode. But without further ado, I'd like to dive into the interview itself. Always fun having Jared on the program. Uh, and let's fly right in. This is Jared Dunman with the DIU here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Jared, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, glad to be able to be diving in with you on the AI is Here series. We've had a lot of private sector, and you're coming at it from a totally different angle. I know that we're talking about uh, sort of maximally leveraging the publicly available data sets or commercially available data sets in the world in terms of use cases and trends that you think matter. Talk to us about what is this category of use cases, and then we can get into a few specific ones because you're doing this uh, up close and personal here. Sure thing. I think one of the use cases that we see commonly that's really starting to pop up, you know, in a number of places is really just analysis of publicly available and commercially available information. So PAI, CAI, that's the way we refer to it. And this is because we live in a world where uh, you have data that's generated by the public sector. That data is, you know, it can be you know, reasonably large size. Uh, but if you think about where the vast majority of the data in the world is being generated, it's out in, it's out on the internet. It's out in places where you know, it's out in industry. 
uh, and being able to analyze various pieces of that data at scale, whether it be uh, text documents, whether it be images, whether it be video, whether it be more ex- exotic things like even lo- like LIDAR, even open source radar these days, uh, being able to process all of that, both in terms of the volume of you know, the, the purely the volume of data, but also the volume of compute required to process all that data is uh, is a challenge that we see popping up uh, across the different applications that we work on, specifically because uh, to do, uh, build models that help you do a better job at uh, understanding medical imagery, you know, across the board. Um, and so that, that's a major area of application that I would that I would highlight that we're seeing come to the fore. Um, and yeah, if we could just get into a few of some of the particulars for you that are relevant there. I mean, you mentioned the medical side of things. You and I had talked off microphone about even logistics and supply chain or tracking individual entities. There's a few of these to go into. It sounds like the nutshell here is there's so much, uh, you know, we're swimming in more and more data in, in the, um, in our, in every single industry conceivable. And most of what we want to know about the world is hiding in signals that are not in something we have in a file cabinet or even in a virtual file cabinet. And so we have to make the most of that. So many different areas of potential. And, and at the DIU, I mean, you guys have humanitarian stuff. You're obviously supporting defense. The range is quite wide. And you have so many analysts. I, I happen to know even just from talking to DOD folks, so many analysts are having their jobs leveled up with this stuff. Let's talk about a couple discrete ones that for you are cool use cases and great examples of where this stuff is hitting the ground running today. Yeah, I mean, one example that immediately comes to mind is just in the broader setting of, you know, understanding, you know, if we're a public sector, being able to understand what our supply chains look like, be that hardware or software is really important. And if you think about the amount of data that describes all of the interactions that have to happen for a complex product to get made. It's a, it's a lot of information. And if you have humans who are constantly looking at not just one product, but maybe hundreds or tens or thousands of products, it, it's hard to do at scale. It's, there's just, you know, we're talking about a world where we've moved from hundreds of thousands of documents to millions of billions of documents. Uh, and these things be multimedia things. Um, and be able to move from a, you know, document, you know, based view of the world to being able to move to an entity based view of the world is like a fundamental shift in analysis that is being enabled by AI technology, broadly speaking. And that means, you know, instead of saying, I want to find out something about this particular, you know, company or shell entity, say, and I want to go and, you know, read all the documents I can find about it. And as a human analyze and say, well, what is, what are these folks selling? What, who are they transacting with? Uh, where are suppliers coming in from? What I can do is extract all that automatically at scale into a knowledge base, knowledge graph, what have you. And then as an analyst, I can just say, all right, show me this entity. And all of those relations are populated. All of the entities have been extracted from those, those pieces of text. And you can start to see the world of this, as this web of entities and relationships that allows you as a human to make much more rapid and much more informed decisions about whatever analysis task that you're doing at a scale that you would otherwise been, have been unable to access. Um, and actually, Jared, I'm just, I'm going to pause you for half a second. The, um, I think it might, there's a, Shot that it's on my side, but just to be safe, actually, I do want to make sure I have a local audio because I had a couple bits of chop. And uh, I again, the last thing I want to do is use your time again. So because it'll give us no, it'll take us no extra time. Even if if you have like a phone, there's that method uh, of just like run a damn note, and then I'll just give you a Google Doc to pop it into. Or if you feel more comfortable with that online thing, we can. In either case, I just want to be triple safe because the last thing I want to do is be like, oh, it wasn't perfect. You know, I. 
I, I want to make sure this is up and live. So because I knew it would take me 30 seconds, I thank you for, for enduring that, my good sir. I, I appreciate it sincerely. It means a lot. Um, all right. So we, you just covered your entity thing. I'll take it over from my side here. We'll pass it back and forth. All right. So this can apply, obviously, to uh, business entities. It could apply to governments. It could apply to individuals, I can even imagine, or maybe even topics or themes. And I know that one of the things that we talked about last time was just the task of being able to determine what entity is which. Um, I think you would you'd call it like kind of validating what the actual entity is. When is IBM Inc. Uh, the same as International Business Machines, the same as IBM.com, the same as, and this that extrapolated problem happens everywhere. Um, it, it seems like that's a huge ML capability as well, because my presumption is your analysts otherwise would have to be putting these things in spreadsheets and see which one starts with the same letter or which one themes seem the same or whatever. Yeah, in general, one of the things that machine learning is very good for is problems where you have a long tail, where you're pattern matching and you see, look, there are many different ways to say this. Uh, there are many different ways to express this. Uh, and what you would like to do is make sure that as, if a, as, as a human, if you saw, say, a name for you saw international business machines and then you saw the first time you saw IBM in a, in a document, you would say, well, what is that? And you would go and you would probably look for context. You would look around. You would see kind of what other words are around it. You would get a sense of, oh, this is probably a company. Oh, I think that's a company I've seen before. Machine learning models at this point in time have enough statistical knowledge about language and uh, have learned enough about the way that language is put together that they can make that same sort of contextual inference in a lot of ways that helps you do things like ambiguate different you know, entities that um, they may be called something different, but in fact, they are referring to the same thing. And it's a critical part of uh, building out these knowledge bases, because if you, you know, have a bunch, you know, 50% of your knowledge over here about, you know, international business machines, 50% of your knowledge over here about IBM, and you don't, know, you don't know to link the two together, there may be crucial facts that you miss. Yeah. And so um, in terms of, what this looks like in the world, I guess the way that I imagined this uh, 30 years ago, or maybe even the beginning of the internet, maybe we could look at 20 years ago, 18 years ago, um, somebody hops into Google, they're doing a bunch of research, they're, they're trying to figure out uh, what some entity is doing, or, or what kind of activities are happening in a certain geo region, whatever the case may be, that might be relevant for, let's just say, in this case, some kind of defense purposes, or homeland security purposes. They do as much homework as they can, they create charts or graphs, if it's if it's possible, uh, otherwise they collect as many anecdotes as are relevant and then write up something brief and make sure that decision makers are up to, up to speed as to what happened this week in this space. And that was it. Probably today, even without AI, it's a little bit more advanced than that. But with AI, my guess is it gets even more advanced. We get to look at graphs and charts of things in real time. How many times has IBM been mentioned, you know, uh, in, you know, the last 24 hours, you know, on something? Um, talk a little bit about the evolution of what the output is, because this actually changed the way people analysts um, communicate their information, use their information. Um, what does that actually look like now as this evolves? Yeah, the types of analysis that you do are really just moved up, a, they're moved up a level. So in, instead of having to go through and read a bunch of documents to figure out what was going on with entity X, you've done that already. You know, you've extracted all those mentions of entities, of, of that entity, say, across many, many, many different documents or billion, it could be billions of them. And you then run many different models to search for relations. So it's you know, is given a sentence in entity model that tells you if it's how confident it is that entity A is an investor in entity B or entity A is like a father of entity B, right? You know, all sorts of things. And being able to build out those relations, run those relation extraction models at scale on top of these entities that you've extracted at scale using what's called named entity recognition models, you end up with, 
you're populating all your entities, populating relations, and then you have what's called a graph. And this is not a plot. This is called a graph. A graph is formally a set of nodes instead of edges, and then a set of edges or a set of entities instead of relations. And on top of that, there's, there's now, you now have this data object that allows you as a human to interrogate it in a way that is human parsable, but very efficient. But it also allows you to ask very different questions. So if you look at a graph and you start to ask, well, hey, I, I can train neural nets actually on top of these graphs to be able to say, are there associations or sub or sub parts of this graph that look anomalous? And if so, why? Is there a link? Is there a relation that I think should be somewhere? But it's not. And and if so, you know, given my data, you know, there's a really high probability that these two things are connected, even though I don't have a primary source saying they should be. Um, that's the type of analysis that you can now run and that you can be scanning for a massive scale. So you're running these anomaly generators, and all of a sudden you walk in instead of having to say, oh, let me read through building documents and then let me try to find anomalies uh, and look at different subsets of this graph that look strange. You walk in, you get your cup of coffee, and then you have an output that says, hey, your model says there's a weird set of piece of this graph over here. You might want to take a look at it. And by the way, this thing over here is probably connected to this thing over here. I think you should add that to the graph. Like that is a fundamentally more scalable way of, of doing analysis that, that you wouldn't have been able to do before this. Yeah. So there's, there's really a lot of elements to this that are changing. We always like to um, kind of highlight in an almost visual way for the listeners so they can see in their own mind the before and after workflow. It's, it seems like, you know, I was thinking about the difference for, let's say, the general or whoever's going to receive the end report from this kind of analysis uh, is clearly potentially quite different. There might be a dashboard or there might be all kinds of graphs, as you've articulated here, in terms of the connectivity of different groups and how they relate and whatever the case may be. Um, so there's there's a different level of visualness. There's a different amount of information that they can drink in at one time. Uh, there's certainly a lot more potential for real time because we don't need a human counting everything. So that, that output is different. But even the the workflow of the person is quite different, not just because they can see more at once or or they can they can connect some dots or drink in more data sources. Um, but also, as you're articulating, uh, anomalies can kind of be put directly in front of them. So they're not having to comb through which ones are anomalous and then say, oh, yeah, these are kind of different. They have a dashboard of what I, the needles in the haystack are potentially at the top of the list. So when they log in for the day, they can just look at the needles, which are going to be potentially the most meaty things about that particular entity in this particular case. So it really feels like their workflow shifts a good deal as well. It's important to get used to how those models are built, right? Because what it means is that you, if you think about what we just talked about, there are three levels of machine learning model built. There's the models that extract your entities from, you know, from bits of text or images or what have you. There's your relation extraction models, and then there's your graph analysis model on top of the graph that you built. And by the way, if any one of those things goes wrong, uh, your your name entity recognition models all of a sudden starts missing some some subset of entities that you really care about, or your relation extraction model starts, you know, you know, throwing a bunch of false positives. Your view of the world is going to be not what it should be, and that means that to rec- to deploy machine learning on that scale, you have to have industrial scale tools to do it. And that means that for each and every one of those models, you have to be constantly doing quality control. You've got to be constantly doing, uh, making sure that the data, the assumptions that you've made about your data are still true. You've got to be constantly making sure that doing still makes sense. And, uh, and so there, there's a lot that goes into this because yes, you can accelerate the, you know, your analysis workflows massively where the end user, you know, just has a, has a report that says, Hey, looks like there was, uh, something weird in your supply chain where, 
uh, company A invested in company B, and that wasn't the case five days ago. And oh, by the way, company A is connected to company C and D that you know are problematic. And you know, so maybe you should look at this. Um, and that's the type of in, that's the type of concise statement that you will get where where the things that went into that were parsing through many documents, pulling out mentions of all those things figuring out how they were related and then watching that over time to see if how it changed, which may have been reported in five separate places. So yeah, it's, it's a much more concise version of some of the analysis tasks that we ask folks to do. But at the same time, you're going to have to think your organizations to support that because those models need care and feeding. They don't just work all the time. And so maybe if you had a hundred analysts doing a task, you know, now you've got like 10 of them doing, doing the task in a way that's, that's kind of automation enabled. Yeah. But you've got a lot of some of those folks who say used to be doing the task prime, you know, in a primary way are now doing quality control. Are now making sure that the, the, the data that's, that's being used to train these models is correct, that they're not being sub, uh, subjected to specific error modes that would cause downstream problems. So this is a really important system of systems point, uh, that, that folks, I think, have to wrap their heads around to be able to not only benefit from these models in practice, but be able to support them in the long run in the way that they can continue to get measurable business impact from them. Yeah. And as you mentioned, models require care and feeding. Um, you don't just, you know, turn on, quote unquote, an AI system and it's, oh, all of the needles that we're looking for in this giant haystack are right at the top of my dashboard. Um, there's so much that goes into that, as you had talked about. There's uh, controlling for, for drift over time. There's also all the upfront setup of defining what is a needle. What are the kind of connections that we want to see? What are the kind of insights that are really going to help our analysts? And I can imagine getting very good at that upfront work, uh, before we deploy are, are going to be skills that certainly in, in your world, I imagine have become much more important in the last four or five years, uh, and in probably every other industry as well. Yeah. I would say that. Being able to deploy what we, what we really focus on is, is, you know, the, support the machine learning life cycle, shall we say? Yeah. Is something that we're just getting a wave of companies that is focused on doing that, not necessarily for, you know, just sophisticated software customers, but also for customers that exist in, you know, industries that maybe weren't benefiting from large amounts of data analysis beforehand. And they're an application specific business, but they want to build machine learning models to support whatever that business happens to be. And whether that's again in the private sector or the public sector, um, you know, if you're a tech company, you can build this infrastructure internally and that's fine. And that's, that's a good thing to do. But for the vast majority of enterprises out there, they're not going to build that ML ops infrastructure, which is, you know, what, what we want to call these things on their own. And so that wave of companies that is providing, you know, scalable, ML ops services that allow folks to not only have a model, but to continuously test it, do continuous integration, continuous deployment uh, of different models, be able to do out of distribution detection when they're deploying the models to, to, so, so, you know, in practice, one can see, Hey, my model is now operating in a space of the data that it was not trained to operate in. Yeah. So don't test it here. All of those types of infrastructure. That are not for development. They're not for training the model or turning the crank once. Therefore, making sure that once we've turned the crank, we can continue to deploy those models and be able to deploy many of them simultaneously. So if I've got to monitor a hundred or a thousand models, I can't do it manually. I've got to be able to have some sort of, uh, you know, scaffolding to help me do that. And this is becoming a rather important part of being able to transition organizations from manual processes over to machine learning enabled processes. 
Got it. And certainly lots of cultural change is going to have to happen ahead. We're going to talk a little bit about that picture of the future in terms of this analyst enhancement use case. Uh, just to sort of nutshell the AI is here lesson, there are you know analysts all over the public sector space, I can imagine now, who are leveraging exactly what you had talked about, that sort of publicly available, commercially available data to uh, track entities for defense purposes, uh, track different activity for uh, maybe economic purposes or logistics related purposes in some way, shape or form. Uh, anything at all that somebody has to produce reports about or find insights about to inform action is starting to be leveled up by this technology. I'm thinking from a kind of a use case standpoint, clearly there is a whole cultural conversation here, Jared, and you're within a very large organization, so you're getting to see a lot of that. But if we we think about kind of the the workflows, the change in, in where do these technologies head? As, as, you, as you've alluded to before, we're going to be swimming in more and more data. People are going to have to go through more and more of this. Hopefully, we're going to all level up our skills at being able to set up these systems. As that data starts coming to life and it becomes more and more the norm to have these dashboards that are able to pull in the needles instead of the haystack, um, what does that mean for defense in general and where things are headed? I think it means you're going to end up, A, hopefully being, hopefully we'll end up as a security community being overall more effective at what we do. On the other hand, it's, it's going to mean that curating all of the data that goes into building various types of models and making sure that those models are quality controlled and making sure that we're, we, we're confident that we've assessed the risks and rewards that go along with deploying a certain model. All of those processes are going to have to become muscle memory and they're going to have to become things that folks at various levels in an organization, be they, you know, senior or junior, be they technical, non-technical, uh, are going to have to be comfortable with to some degree because you're never going to trust something and you're never going to use it uh, when there's a crisis or when the outcome of the decision you're making is really important unless you've been able to train with it, unless you've been able to figure out how it behaves, figure out you know how, how to upweight or downweight its opinion uh, within your workflow. And there's a piece of that that involves making sure that folks that we don't just develop capabilities, but that we make sure that folks practice with them, that they drill with them, that they get used to using them and are comfortable using them, even in a context that's stressful. But then there's a higher level question that we can ask, which is not just, well, you know, how, how do we build systems that improve our current workflows? There's a larger question here of how do you actually construct human machine teaming workflows that optimize overall throughput or overall performance given a set of resources by optimizing which parts of the workflow that, you know, say a computer is doing versus which parts of the workflow a human operator is doing. And that requires some fundamental rethinking about how do we build our organizations? How do we resource them? How do we train people? And what are the key systems that enable them? So uh, it's a high level answer, but I also think that the, that, that it's important to sometimes zoom out and take the 10,000 foot view uh, because if you just assume that today's processes are using machine learning or AI to accelerate uh, today's processes is something that is going to optimize the end-to-end workflow, in many cases, I would argue that is not true. Yeah, you're putting a lot of emphasis on it. And I think that should be hopefully a lesson for the listeners, just how much emphasis there has to be on the muscle memory element of this and really consciously constructing how humans and machines work together. 
um, obviously of paramount importance and life and death importance sometimes in your world. Uh, but in the business context, I think just as important in terms of getting to the outcomes that they're looking for. Uh, a last little quick point to touch on here, Jared, as we wrap up, um, you know, we look at spaces like the defense world where, where you guys live and also the world of kind of wealth management are some of the areas that are cutting edge in this kind of external search application that you've talked about, this leveraging of publicly available data. We are sort of seeing folks in finance thinking about a future where trading decisions are similarly layered with this kind of very robust, potentially very visual uh, analysis of what's happening in terms of the market. So if somebody's trading uh, the Philippine currency, for example, they can look at the the uh, activity between shipping ports from satellite data, they can look at social media, whatever the case may be. And then essentially, uh, decisions, almost all strategic decisions will be kind of leveled up with this AI level of analysis in finance. And then if you really want to compete, you're going to have to be looking at something through a lens where, again, those needles are at the top of the haystack for you already. In the defense world, do you see this as kind of inevitable too? And any of these processes where parsing is being done in the old school way will at, at some point sort of be taken to this next level where the needles are already parsed out? Or are there spaces where maybe that is less likely to happen? I'd love your take on this in closing. I think in general, folks are aware that there is often an inverse correlation between how risky something is and how much you're willing to delegate to computation. And certainly in the DOD, we have you know, a set of AI ethical principles that I think Dan, we talked about at the point. Um, and we have, you know, on the DIU side, we have guidelines for how we implement those on our programs. And it's really important to make sure that one is thinking about not just what can one do, but what are the potential harms of a given system and how you're building it? What are the potential benefits of that system? And really weighing those two things in a clear-eyed way, uh, documenting those things, by the way, as you're building your system, and making sure that you're continuously evaluating whether or not uh, the assumptions that you built the system under are still valid as you deploy it. The reason I say this is because the degree to which you're going to see tasks become automated and using some of these technologies in the public sector, I would say, is very directly connected to the risk reward trade-offs that any given application is going to demonstrate. And on the public sector side, it's we have a particular duty to make sure that we're cognizant of those things, are expressing those things, are measure and are measuring those things. This measurement point is probably the best answer to your question because if you're not clear about what your task is, how you measure success, and what your baseline is to start with, it's very difficult to make a concerted value proposition to say, look, Given the upsides and the downsides, this computational solution is going to, in the net, provide value. And this is something that we believe that we should should automate versus saying the downsides here are just too great given the measured you know the measured potential improvement in our processes, and, and we're not going to do that. And so this ability to be very clear and quantitative about how we are measuring both the potential upside and potential downsides of leveraging AI in a particular way is really going to drive to what degree it's inevitable, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, uh, well, 
huge emphasis here on the barriers to adoption as you're talking about building that competence of determining how we're going to measure, building that competence of treating data the right way and being able to have teams of subject matter experts and data scientists come together. Uh, it's hard to argue with that, that the level of inevitability has to do with our level of being able to wield it properly, uh, ethically and technically uh, to get the darn job done. So again, transferable lessons to the business world for sure. Jared, it is always a pleasure to be able to catch up. Thank you so much for being able to join us in this series. Likewise. Thanks, Dan. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and a big thank you to Jared for being able to join us again. I think directly before this interview, he was presenting about AI solutions to a bunch of senators or something like that. He had his nice suit on and he was over there in the office and we were working on getting our connection right and all those things and he still made the time to, to get this interview in. Uh, so super appreciate Jared being able to make the effort. Excellent to have a defense perspective in this series. And thank you to you, our listener, for tuning in. As mentioned, this episode is brought to you by Samba Nova. Samba Nova believes that AI is here. If you want to learn more about Samba Nova themselves, you can go to sambanova.com slash AI dash is dash here, or just go on Google Samba Nova. AI is here. You can learn more. Uh, Samba has been doing a great job sharing many of the best insights that we've had in the AI is here episodes across LinkedIn, Twitter, and other social media channels. We've got some great quote cards and snippets going around from some of our top insights from the series thus far, and we've got many more to go. So you can follow our coverage here and you can see what Samba Nova is doing. Again, I mentioned their URL there as well. That's all for this episode. Look forward to catching you in the next one here on the AI in Business Podcast.